This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Dell Clark, CFO of Inspirage, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 330. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. I'm Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Dustin Williams, CFO of Nutanix, the up-and-coming cloud computing company. Dustin is a career CFO who's had CFO tours of duties at a string of companies. He's raised more than $3 billion in financing along the way. His first uh, CFO tour of duty was at Western Digital, where he climbed the ranks from the ground up. We speak to Dustin about his original CFO door of entry and how Nutanix's big vision led him to open yet another CFO chapter. Plus, how he got in front of ASC 606 and became one of the standard's early compliance champions. All this after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. Hello, we're speaking with Dustin Williams, CFO of Nutanix. Along his career path, Dustin has served as the CFO of two multi-billion dollar companies, and raised more than $3 billion in financing. Dustin, welcome. Thanks so much. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me today. Yeah, thanks for making the time for us. And uh, as always, Dustin, we want to find out about Nutanix. But first, uh, we always like to ask our guests to share with us, uh, take us back in time and identify those milestones they feel helped prepare them to play this CFO role, which, of course, you've had several tours of duty now. So what were those career steps that you took that helped prepare you? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you think back uh, through 
some of these uh, some of these steps that they you know when you it's always a decision that you make uh, and it's not uh, always intuitively obvious uh, until really several years uh, later and you know most of uh, my examples and and uh, thoughts around this come back to my Western digital days and I think the first thing really was just the decision to take the job at Western Digital. And the reason I say that is, uh, and taking the right job, believe it or not, I, I interviewed, I think, for seven different roles there before I decided uh, to pick uh, the role that I initially went in there, which was the corporate uh, FP&A manager. But I say, you know, picking Western Digital, uh, in hindsight, uh, was one of the smarter moves I made career-wise because the opportunities were endless. And it's a business that's very tough, uh, tougher back then than it, than it is today in, in some regards. But uh, if you were aggressive, reasonably intelligent, you could do anything. And, uh, you know, I, I had opportunities as a very young uh, up-and-coming finance person, quite honestly, that I, uh, that I didn't probably deserve as a very young age. And, you know, it's one of the best, by the way, uh, career advice I, I also got. Uh, when I first, uh, you know, started at Western Digital, I was doing a lot of different things. I was starting to get promoted, and I was, you know, I was somewhat complaining. I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't getting rewarded financially. I remember uh, Bob Corey, the corporate controller at the time, uh, said, "Dustin, you know, that's the last thing you should worry about. You should go check as many boxes of experience as you possibly can, as quick as you can, and the money will flow." And that was uh, stuck with me for a long time. And uh, I think uh, Bob was ultimately right. So that was probably the first thing. I think the second thing, which may sound a little strange, I had a uh, uh, degree in accounting. But uh, Western Digital at the time also offered me uh, to get an MBA, and they offered to, to pay for the whole thing. And I looked at it initially as another check-the-box thing. But I tell you, I took so much away uh, from the MBA, specifically within my, within my corporate FP&A role, that uh, uh, it really uh, helped me as an individual and, uh, you know, a young uh, finance uh, person uh, at that time. And then I think finally, again, you know, it's a, it's a thing that you look back and say, geez, you know, I think that was the right role, uh, the right thing to do, was I passed up. Uh, a CFO job uh, externally while I was at Western Digital. And this was, jeez, uh, uh, I, I couldn't have been more than 31 or something at that time. And Western Digital went over backwards. They moved three other uh, vice presidents and gave me the treasurer role. And I didn't want to be a treasurer for my life, but, you know, I spent two years uh, as treasurer. Uh, I checked another box, uh, stayed at Western Digital, and then, you know, soon was promoted uh, to the CFO there. So, you know, when you look back, you know, th those three things really, you know, kind of set things up for the future. Because after that, you know, you can kind of pick what you want to do uh, with that type of experience. And, you know, we grew uh, when I my 14 years at Western Digital. We started, uh, you know, roughly 200, less than $200 million. And uh, during my tenure, we got up to over, I think, $4 billion. So a lot, lot going on there. 
Yeah, that growth alone underscores the opportunity. But as you, when you first arrived there, all these opportunities, well, what exactly? You were able to get involved in business development. You were able to get involved in, um, what was it exactly that you, uh, you knew you could sink your teeth into? Yeah, so uh, I was smart enough at the time to pick uh, initially the corporate FP&A role. And I knew it would get uh, exposure to senior folks. And, uh, you know, that allowed me to get into some, uh, uh, some M&A uh, work and, uh, you know, work with the CEO and the CFO and, and things like that. So uh, yeah, I knew I could get fairly broad within, uh, within that role and get a lot of exposure. And so I got some exposure. And then, you know, a little while after that, uh, I took on, uh, you know, more of an operational finance role, you know, as a, as a controller and eventually uh, vice president uh, responsible for all the plants uh, in the company. And we had several plants in, in Singapore and Malaysia and, and around the world. And it said, you know, it's a tough, tough business. And there was just, you know, if you were up for the challenge, uh, there was just endless opportunities to go pick from. And from a finance perspective, you know, there's, there's nothing better than that. And I was blessed, actually, it was a company and, and management at the time that didn't really care how old you were or what you did. Uh, they would give you uh, opportunities that uh, probably most other companies wouldn't have done. How many years were you at Western Digital then? Yeah, 14. A long, uh, a long tenure. Uh, but it was, uh, uh, I worked very closely with a woman who ran most of the business, and she always used to say, you know, Dustin, it's, uh, it's a tough business, and, uh, you know, it's like dog years, right? So one year of experience in a disk drive business is, uh, is like seven years of experience in total. So. Now, did you take a break to get your MBA, or is that something you did in, in parallel? Yeah, and no, I did in parallel. Uh, I took some, uh, you know, days off or a day off to, during the week or so and, and uh, you know, managed uh, the work uh, at the same time. I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids then. So, it, you know, it was pretty much work in, in school. And, and fortunately, uh, the company uh, paid for everything. So, you know, they offered it, and I, I took advantage of it. You said it was at the time you thought of it just as checking the box, and I think this is interesting because there are a lot of finance executives who come to this point where it's like, should I or shouldn't I? And, and then you said as you got into the, the content or the material, the studies, uh, wow, it, you know, it opened your mind uh, perhaps in some way. Can you give us what, what exactly was it that uh, – and, and, again, you're, you've got a full-time job and you're doing this, so I can imagine it was a headache most weekends. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was at USC, and it just so happened that, uh, you know, there was a, a finance professor there at the time, Tim Campbell, and, you know, Tim had a way of, uh, of teaching things that, uh, you know, got you uh, uh, connected to, to the work, and there's nothing more uh, exciting and beneficial that you're learning something, but it has direct correlation uh, to what you maybe did yesterday or, or the day before. And, uh, you know, we were going through a lot of, uh, of things uh, during the time at Western Digital, balance sheet-wise, you know, debt and equity and cost of capital and, you know, you name it. And uh, it was that direct connection to, 
you know, your kind of your day-to-day job that, uh, uh, that uh, you know, really was, uh, was beneficial. Made it fun. I want to, uh, and forgive me, I, I am straying a little bit uh, here because I just think it's an interesting, uh, a lot of executives uh, are, have built their careers in single companies, and, and, and at one point in time, it's, they make the decision, is it time to leave? Isn't it? Are there more opportunities? So, and, and here you went on to have this very successful career as a CFO and, and take companies public. And, you know, uh, it, it's sort of a, a path so many uh, would love to take. Uh, but stepping back to that point in time where you made that decision to step off, do you wish you did it sooner? Is, was it the right time finally? What was it that uh, allowed you to, to, to take that step? Yeah, it's actually a, it's a it's a fabulous question actually because uh, I did give it a lot of thought. You know, after you know fourteen years, you get comfortable, and you know, uh, you know the disc drive business uh, tough business, but they paid well. And as a fairly young uh, executive, if you will, uh, I was making um, you know very good money, but it was fourteen years in the same industry, working with the same people. Uh, effectively, you know, business model was changing and things like that. But you know, it it I was uh, I needed to to learn different things and I needed to meet different people. And uh, the easiest decision would have been to keep, you know, stay there and and uh, and just keep doing what I was doing. And that, at that time, when I left, I was the CFO. I'd been the CFO for about four years. But I was just—I wanted to do something different, and uh, and that's what I did, and and uh, actually moved uh, for the most part up to uh, up to Northern California, where obviously the the amount of opportunities then uh, from a job perspective are also endless uh, up where up where we live here. At that time, I always was making the decision when I was doing something different: do I want to go back to a big company, or do I want to you know do a smaller company, take it public, or whatever? And it was just the the, the smaller companies and growing companies was just uh, ultimately more interesting to me. Okay, so over the last seven years, you have led two companies through an IPO, and then you join Nutanix, if I'm right. And what yeah. is the type of job? What is it that that's you're going to get sat, find satisfying here? You've done the drill before. What is it that uh, excited you about this opportunity? Oh yeah, I mean this opportunity uh, clearly uh, only comes along. Uh, I don't know, maybe every uh, every five or, or ten years, and and uh, you know it's a you know a company that uh, has and continues to create a enterprise cloud operating system, and, and for companies to have you know the, the the chance to create a new operating system, it only comes along every so often. We play in a massively big TAM, you know, 100 billion or more. And what really attracted me uh, was to come here at a reasonably early stage and help uh, build a very, very big, uh, successful company over time. And probably, you know, as the most likely the last thing that I do uh, in my career, uh, most likely, and uh, just to get the satisfaction of. Uh, as I say, potentially building a, a very big company that just the opportunity like that doesn't come along too often. 
what are the, and they're probably obvious things you look at, but as you judge these opportunities, and I'm asking this because here you've done it, you, you've moved in, and many CFOs, many, many opportunity CFOs face, they have to wonder sometimes whether the company is everything, uh, you know, they expect. I'm wondering what, how you qualified the opportunity, uh, and that's a question I, I don't always ask, but was there, you know, given the fact that you've done this correctly as many times as you have. What is it maybe that they share in common that that allowed you to say yes to this latest one? Yeah, for a company like this, and as I say, to have you know, the ability to potentially you know, create another uh, uh, you know, operating system and what we're endeavoring here is a, you know, an enterprise cloud operating system, effectively a single pane of glass that manages your entire data infrastructure. So it's a big, bold, vision and, and what we're accomplishing here. But I think, you know, in order to do that, you have to have uh, large disruption taking place. And clearly, you know, when I looked at the opportunity, uh, there was massive disruption to be had because today, and even mostly today, you know, there's $100 billion being spent on legacy infrastructure. That's three tier. You buy separate servers and separate storage, and you have to worry about separate uh, you know, networking to connect all that stuff. But it became, you know, very tough to go manage. It was very costly. You had separate silos of folks. And, you know, what we're doing is, is you know, completely uh, changing that. And uh, so that was, you know, I knew that the, the disruption was there. But you start, you always start with, a, I do anyway, and look at the size of the TAM. Because if you're playing in a billion-dollar TAM or whatever, you know, two billion or something. It's not all that exciting. So, uh, you know, I think that the size of the TAM, the disruption, uh, the leadership at the company, obviously, what they had already accomplished, and you start checking off all these boxes, and when you look at these opportunities, and, and uh, you know, you you, you, don't, you, know, you never know, uh, you know if you don't have a perfect, you know, view into things. But uh, uh, clearly, it's it's been the right right opportunity and the right choice for me. Could you tell us, and, and clearly there are probably opportunities that you've turned down in the past or you said not for me. Is there? Can you share with us what was the reason that in the past perhaps you, you weren't interested? Yeah, again, uh, some of it uh, could be the size of the TAM. It's just that you just simply can't grow it big enough. Uh, and uh, so that, that doesn't you know, lend to something that's uh, very exciting uh, from that perspective. And you have to have, uh, uh, you know, you've got to be uh, comfortable with the leadership of the company. And you're going to work uh, hard and you're going to work with, uh, you know, with the leadership day in and day out. And if you're not comfortable, uh, either they're the right folks or that's who you want to work with, uh, you know, then, uh, then that's not going to be much fun. And, you know, when, you, when you boil it all down, uh, Jack, really it's three simple things. And you can put them in any order. I look uh, at an opportunity. I've always looked at opportunities. Uh, and, you know, whether you're going to stay in an opportunity after a while, there's only three things from my perspective. You can put them in any order you want. It's can I have fun, can I make a difference, and can I make money? And outside of those three, there's really not a whole lot of other things besides those uh, those three things. Now, can you share with us, uh, you know, you rolled up your sleeves as you got there. What was your, your order of business here in terms of 
your team and, and creating the finance function you knew you would need to uh, take this company where you want it to go? Yeah, that's interesting, too, because this, this is my third uh, company that I've taken public. So the first one, uh, which was back in, um, in 2007, uh, that uh, I had to really, the whole finance team except for uh, the revenue controller was completely replaced, uh, and it was a mess. And that was, uh, you know, building from the ground up, putting a whole new team of folks in, processes, et cetera. So that was uh, massively heavy lifting. The second uh, company uh, that I took uh, took public in uh, in 2013, I guess, uh, there was a little bit of that, uh, some replacing, uh, but not a ton, but it was still some heavy, heavy lifting. I was blessed when I came to Nutanix, pleasantly surprised uh, with the finance and accounting team that we had in place here. It was great. I had two great leaders, you know, one in accounting and one in the finance uh, team there. So I did very little uh, from an organization perspective. Obviously, we've built it up. Uh, over time with, you know, additional folks and things like that. But uh, this role, uh, I was able to focus more on, on process, uh, learning the business and getting the company ready to be public. And that was just the more, you know, fine-tuning, you know, like quarter-end things and, and uh, being able to forecast not only bookings but revenue and gross margin and profits and things like that. And I'd say learning the business and, and getting it ready to, to present, uh, you know, eventually to uh, uh, to investors in the financial community. So, so this one was uh, was much easier from that perspective. You know, I'm always funny. I, having you know, you've done the path, the uh, the road shows, everything that it takes, educating the analysts, talking to the bankers. But is there one question that you always wonder why it's seldom, if ever, asked? And yet it speaks to the health of a company when it's going public. Is there anything that comes to mind or no? They, they throw everything at you, I imagine. Yeah, I think they, they pretty much throw everything. And, and, you know, it's my job to try to, uh, uh, you know, with, within the presentation of materials to, to answer those uh, questions before they're asked, quite honestly. And, you know, we give a lot of thought to how, how we go about presenting information and, and, uh, you know, you've got to, I've always thought, uh, you know, ahead. And if I was an investor or whoever, you know, what questions am I going to ask? What, what's going to concern me? And try to present that in a very simplistic manner well in advance of them having to ask the question, actually. What would be the most noticeable difference between your first presentation, uh, the first company you took, versus how you present now? Any, any changes? Not, uh, not uh, massively different. Of course, the businesses were different, so you 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 know you've got different business models uh, and things like that. But you know, I don't uh, I don't think there's. I'm I'm uh, thinking how you communicate and how you uh, you know as a presenter might have uh, changed your style at all. But it doesn't sound like you have. Yeah. No, I mean you always. you know, you get prepared and, and you uh, you take it seriously uh, and you have fun at it. And uh, I've had actually uh, more fun, you know, once you do it a few times, you have more and more fun and it, it, it actually becomes uh, 
uh, quite enjoyable uh, from, a, from a presentation and, and presenting of the data, actually, it's, uh, in the business. And you know, you're, you're obviously selling the company uh, to individuals and investors and, and, uh, and telling a story, actually. Everything's kind of a story in, in some regard. Okay, so you've indicated that this was a big opportunity, and that's how it, it captured your attention, that they were talking about doing something big here. So I'm wondering if you could tell us about, give us some sense of the competitive landscape for these offerings, and why is it, as you described, that this is, this is big? Yeah, so again, today, in three-tier infrastructure, uh, it's, it's massively complicated, but, but the, the good news is there's $100 billion plus uh, of, uh, of money being spent every year uh, and, uh, you know, around legacy, you know, big SANs and uh, servers and, and networking to connect to all those. And what we're saying is what we've done effectively uh, is saying that that's, that's too complicated. It doesn't need to be done that way. And so what we've done, again, is we've taken storage and compute, which was to, used to be, uh, you know, two separate uh, purchasing decisions, silos of folks, collapsed those, basically abstracted it and commoditized it with software, uh, almost made an app out of storage, if you will, and made that massively simple uh, and, and, uh, and commoditized effectively uh, big, uh, expensive uh, uh, storage SAMs and things like that. And then we've kind of completely gone up the stack here. We did the same thing on the virtualization layer. Uh, we took the hypervisor and said, uh, you know, that shouldn't, uh, uh, you shouldn't have to pay for hypervisor, just a commodity. We kind of abstracted and commoditized that. We're doing, going up the stack in security and, and, uh, and doing similar things there now in the public cloud with a true hybrid cloud opportunity. But to make it the, the most simple analogy is, is what we're doing uh, is effectively, you know, the experience that folks have at AWS today, uh, uh, they should have that same uh, experience within their own private cloud, uh, within their own enterprise. And to, uh, you know, ultimately our objective is, is to, just like at AWS, you don't worry about how much storage you have and compute and hypervisor. That's invisible. That infrastructure is invisible. That same look and feel uh, should be uh, within your own enterprise private cloud, that that infrastructure should ultimately be invisible. And all you should have to worry about is the applications because the applications are the only thing that's going to add value ultimately to your business. So, again, you know, we'll provide this single pane of glass operating system uh, for your entire data infrastructure and, and, uh, and uh, make things massively more simple uh, than they are today and to say with a backdrop of, uh, of a $100 billion CAM. And we play uh, in, uh, in an environment that we do compete against, you know, the likes of uh, EMC and, you know, VMware and, and uh, potentially Microsoft and other folks. Uh, so, uh, you know, we have big competitors. But uh, what we've done and the advantages that we have is that we've started this from scratch uh, with this vision of, you know, simplicity and consumer-grade design and uh, right from the beginning and, uh, you know, clearly has given us uh, – uh, a lead, and, and we are a leader in, if you want to call it hyperconverge, because we've kind of gone way beyond that and to, uh, to go up the complete stack. Okay, so what are the, uh, the key metrics you're relying on now to make certain this company's growing the way you want it to? What are you looking at on a day-to-day, -day, given the current stage this company's in? On a daily basis, uh, you know, one of the 
the thing that I love to do because it, it gives you a real feel for the business is uh, every every deal we win and every deal we lose, there are win notes that are done uh, within Salesforce. And I read every one of them because there's a massive amount of information in there about the business. You know, why did we win? Uh, who were we competing against? Uh, you know, how was how did the deal come together? Um, uh, things along those lines. And then even probably more importantly, why did we lose? Uh, you know, were there competitive things going on or, or was there a product issue or things like that? So those, uh, they're a treasure of information from, from a business perspective. And then, you know, again, uh, you know, the more frequent things would be pipelines because it all starts with pipelines. Uh, you can't book anything without having something get into the pipe. So, you know, how much pipe do we have? Uh, do we have enough? You know, how does it look for region and things like that? And then, you know, new customer growth is, is massively important, and then, you know, kind of bookings, billings, and how we're doing within the quarter. And then there's certain ones that make more sense. At the end of the quarter, we, you know, we look a lot at sales rep productivity. Uh, that's a big uh, metric that we use uh, uh, throughout the regions. Global 2000 bookings are really important to us, software, regional performance. And, you know, ultimately, you know, it's a, it's a metric we use uh, within our uh, sales uh, spending and to, to judge the level of efficiency of sales spending, especially gross profit dollars per dollar of sales expense. So that ratio, uh, how, you know, uh, what that looks like. And, and you know, fortunately, again, we're, we're blessed with, you know, great uh, people uh, and great systems uh, which allow us to uh, access, you know, a lot of this information in real time to, to run the business. And, you know, it's actually those same people and systems that just recently uh, allowed us to, uh, I'm not sure how, how close you're following this new revenue standard, but uh, we're one of the very few technology companies, I think Microsoft has adopted and, and, uh, and, and Workday, but one of the very few technology companies that have adopted the new revenue standard. You probably heard, you know, ASC 606. So, uh, you know, we were really uh, pleased that, uh, you know, as a brand new public company, to early adopt this a year earlier uh, was uh, was exciting for us, and I, I think we've done some unique things from an investor perspective and how we communicated uh, these changes uh, to the investment community uh, in a very transparent uh, manner. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'd encourage you to go on our website. We've got a nice uh, separate presentation we put on there from a, a 606 perspective that's getting, I think, a lot of attention because there's lots of companies now trying to figure this out uh, and what to do. We did it with very little external resources, so the team uh, internally uh, pretty much uh, uh, did everything. In our case, it really benefited the business also because we took uh, uh, we had a lot of OEM revenue and, and software revenue that was uh, that was being deferred, and it was really distorting uh, the, the P and L. And these new revenue standards are trying to get everybody on a uh, on a global basis to to recognize revenue in a more consistent manner. So in our case, it, uh, uh, you know, it increased revenues by, uh, you know, 13% and 10% for the last two years. It, our operating margins were uh, improved by, uh, went from, uh, you, know, uh, you know, about a 50% improvement in, in the operating margin. So it, it actually benefited the company tremendously, but pretty, uh, I was pretty excited we were able to, uh, to do that in such a, such a quick uh, time frame. Your idea was let's get at, let's get out in front of this and let's just build it into our 
uh, a county now, so we don't have to uh, have any, you know, speed bumps at, at a more critical time in the future when we're trying to communicate our, our performance effectively. Is that, is that part of it, part of the rationale? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, uh, you know, it was, it was hard because it was so impactful uh, positively uh, to our business that um, uh, you know, we kept explaining uh, to investors, well, once we adopt, this is what, you know, what's going to happen. And there'll be all this positive impact. And, they, you know, you, you kind of look at an investor and they thought you were kind of pulling something over them, you know, and they're like, yeah, okay, I kind of get it. And you were never really getting any credit for it. And, you know, I kind of step back and say, you know, let's, to your point, let's just do this. Get it out of the way. Uh, we're trying to run a business. Uh, you know, let's, let's have the business really uh, shown in a manner uh, that uh, mirrors more of, of what's happening within our, you know, cash flow, which has been pretty good. So, uh, you know, it was nice to, uh, to do this. Uh, uh, there's no more explaining, well, what it will look like under 606 and what it looks like today. And also, quite honestly, there was no, uh, you know, from a communication perspective, uh, there was no set example how to do this with investors and things like that. So that was kind of exciting. So we, we kind of, uh, you know, figured that out ourselves and, and uh, you know, separated. We had two separate calls. We had an earnings call on the old revenue standard. Then a few days later, we followed up with a uh, with a separate call on 606. So everything was uh, uh, simply presented, and uh, and so we're done with that, and uh, we'll go focus on on running the business. I promise to to get back on track with our questions, and I know we're running a little long because I'm throwing you a few extra, but I do think um, sure. our listeners love uh, your detail that you're sharing with us. And my one thought is, is when you mentioned uh, Salesforce, you mentioned this visibility into the pipeline. You mentioned the systems people, how they have worked closely uh, with you guys to give you the visibility into the business you mm -hmm. want. And I think there are a lot of finance leaders who are kind of envious of what you're, you're talking about there. And I'm wondering how to give a sense of perspective uh, relative to other finance functions, all of what uh, your visibility might be like. Um, so let me just simply ask, do you have more visibility than ever before into that pipeline in business? Oh, I think absolutely. I don't think there's any, any doubt, uh, you know, with, with systems today and years ago, effectively you waited, uh, for whatever, uh, you know, ERP system or whatever you want to call it, you were using to kind of crank out the results. You kind of thought, you know, kind of knew what was going on. But you kind of waited uh, either on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis to finally figure everything out. Now, with all, uh, you know, the applications that are out there, you know, Salesforce obviously is, is, you know, the main driver of a lot of this. But there's so many other things to go analyze data with. Uh, uh, you know, Tableau, we're starting to use, uh, you know, a lot more uh, capabilities there that, uh, you know, allow data to be consistent data. Everybody's looking at the same data to be shared, uh, you know, uh, throughout the teams. And uh, we also use some predictability tools, uh, tools called Clary. Uh, we're starting to uh, to use quite a bit. And and uh, never underestimate the importance of a good business applications team. And not just folks that will go do what you tell them to do. Uh, it's folks that also have the ability to think. Uh, you know, and, and, and improve the business on their own. 
and uh, we have a great uh, team that uh, that's been developed internally here that helps uh, helps with a lot of this. But yeah, a lot lot more data uh, daily. You know, it's amazing the the things now that you can see on a on a daily basis that uh, you couldn't see before. Are you using uh, applications like Tableau to put data in, uh, uh, illustrate data points that other parts of your organization can digest more easily? And I guess, like, for instance, the sales team, when you want to educate them, you as a finance leader have to understand how they would like to digest this or what's a way that they would quickly understand or this would mean more be, be more meaningful to them, whereas maybe uh, 10 years ago you didn't take the pains to do that. You're doing that today. Am I describing something that's accurate? Yeah. Again, uh, you know, the more data is available, uh, you always have to control, obviously, who sees what. But uh, the more data that's simply presentable and available, uh, the better off everybody is because, you know, it's the people that are, you know, day-to-day and -day in, in the customers and running the business on a daily basis that uh, – are going to make the difference, and you have to make sure that uh, that, that information is available. And it, you know, it's uh, uh, it's throughout the organization. I was just going through some new things we were doing uh, on on the HR side of the equation. You know, with uh, uh, with a bunch of data that's uh, now getting populated into uh, into Tableau. And I think you know Tableau or something similar. Uh, the beauty of that also is there's no longer uh, an excuse for silos of data because you know, at a certain point you get, if you don't have everything, you've got, you know, somebody with a different data than other people. Now uh, everybody's dealing with the same data, uh, and the consistency of the data is also, uh, you know, very important. Okay. I'm going to take you to our finance strategic uh, moment question, and this yeah. is where I ask you for a, if you've had a finance strategic moment, I'm sure you've had plenty. Uh, but that's a moment of strategic insight that you experienced as a finance leader where you're able to see into the organization and identify either a risk or an opportunity that led you to point the organization in a new direction or just change how things were being done. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, it comes uh, – uh, I, I, I love telling the story because it's uh, – uh, it was so impactful to me, and, and the company goes back to Western Digital again. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna age myself a little bit here, but you know I, when I went to Western Digital, again it was a company less than 200 million. It was very profitable, high margin. Uh, you know life was good, but and it was in the uh, storage controller and, and chip uh, business that, that we were supplying that to disk drive suppliers. Well. What happened is the disk drive became intelligent, and that all collapsed onto uh, onto the drive itself. So we had to get into the drive business, and and there was a massive transition taking place from you know standalone chips to drives. And and uh, long story short, we we uh, we messed it up. And at the time, again, we were making a lot of money. We never worried about the balance sheet, and then things you know we 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 bought a piece of a drive business, the business got bigger, and then things fell apart. And uh, the, uh, in fact, the business, uh, Westerners almost went out of business. And there were, and this is absolutely true, there were, there were nights that I left that company uh, to go home that I didn't know if I was going to lock the doors. Uh, it was, it was that bad. And, uh, 
we had cash meetings twice uh, twice a day. And I remember this vividly up in the boardroom, uh, 14th floor at our, at our office in Irvine. And we were sitting there literally looking at the current quarter with projected cash balances of negative 30 to negative 60 million. And executives are sitting around, and, and oh, by the way, we had 250 million of debt, and the banks wanted it back now. And uh, they were not going to give us any more money. And again, we tried to go, you know, what were we going to do? And we never really focused on the balance sheet. And what we discovered, uh, that there was all this money on the balance sheet, uh, and that's the only way the company was going to survive if we figured out how to manage some assets on the balance sheet. And I remember to this day that we, we hired a new, uh, a new um, supply chain VP. And we were in and, uh, uh, with, uh, with the team uh, and Kathy Bond at the time who ran most of the, most of the business. Uh, we were trying to figure out what we're going to do. And, and Bob Harmley, it was the new uh, supply chain guy, he raised his hand. And he goes, I know what we're going to do. We're going to take inventory turns from, from 3 to 13. And at the time, no disk drive company had, had had inventory turns more than two or three. And I looked at it and said, Bob, how are we going to do that? And he goes, I don't know, Dustin, but you got a better idea. I don't think we have a choice. And, uh, and <laughs> you know, he went, and uh, we actually got the turns uh, uh, up to uh, 22. Uh, I think we tapped out at something like that. DFOs were ridiculous. They were in the 70 or 80 days. We got those down into uh, – uh, into the you know mid 30s, and so ultimately we went from a conversion cycle of uh, I don't know what it was 75 days or 80 days or something ridiculous to a conversion cycle of uh, negative 15 or negative 20 days, and we just sucked a bunch of uh, money out of the balance sheet, and then at the same time we had some good products coming out, and uh, you know luck luckily. Uh, everything kind of came together, and uh, and things turned out all right. I, and ironically, you know, before Dell uh, became known as asset management kind of kings that they became, uh, I remember the time Tom Meredith, who was the CFO there, called up uh, our team and said, you, you guys got to come down and teach us how you're doing this, you know, with the balance sheet and asset management. We have a lot to learn here. Uh, so pretty impressed with what you did with the business. And so we came down and actually, you know, spent a day with, uh, uh, with the Dell team. But, uh, again, ultimately, you know, we grew the business from 200 to, uh, to $4 billion. And uh, I think it, uh, from 92 to 97, it was either the best or one of the best performing stocks on, on the New York Stock Exchange. So, so, yeah, I mean, you back up and, you, and uh, you know, the difference, uh, uh, you know, that we made in the business and, and uh, you know, my appreciation, obviously, for the balance sheet and, and, uh, and the importance of, of the balance sheet and asset management. And, and you know, we changed the dynamics of the company, you know, immensely during that process. So you wouldn't want to go through it more than once, but it was, uh, it was a great learning experience. Thought Leader listeners, don't go anywhere. Dustin Williams is about to enter the mentoring round with us right after these words from our sponsor. 
You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Okay, well, uh, Dustin, we're now going to ask you several quick questions uh, to allow your answers to inspire and advise your CFO peers and aspiring CFOs. Our first question is, what is exciting you about finance and business today? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, again, I, I think... Uh, from a finance perspective, the ability to be, uh, you know, so involved in the business. And that's, you know, the exciting thing for me. I mean, to come in and just do some finance or accounting work, I mean, that's okay, but it's not very exciting. It's the connection to the business that, and uh, in in, in from, a, from a finance person's perspective, we're in a great position because, you know, not only do we have, you know, great understanding of the financials, uh, but you get immersed into the business and the strategy, uh, helping run the company, uh, you know, operating folks, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a big tie-in, uh, you know, with partnering uh, within, uh, within the operations of the business and things like that. So I think it's just, uh, you know, it's kind of a perfect uh, seat to have. That you uh, that you've got insight into uh, into the complete business. Going back, when you think of uh, when you first stepped into a CFO role, what is that one piece of advice you wish someone had shared with you back mm-hmm. then? Yeah, that's uh, that's a uh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, you know, it's uh, investors uh, are, are all different. And they all have different objectives, and and uh, uh, you know you can't, we never quite know uh, what's what's going on with investors. I had no. Uh, I was very fortunate again at WB. I, you know, when I took the CFO role, I I had very little interaction with investors, and again, I was blessed with a great um, investor relations person that really mentored me uh, throughout uh, you know my first uh, few years as CFO there. But I think it's, uh, uh, you know, it's around the investors and, and you know, the importance of, uh, you know, how you communicate and what you communicate to investors uh, that uh, you know, I think uh, a, a new CFO, uh, you know, because you have the blocking and tackling done, you know, that's, that's the easy part. Now you're out selling the company and it's, you know, it's a different, uh, it's a different look and feel and, and you are the voice effectively. Uh, you know, of the company in, in many cases, and uh, you know it's a big responsibility, and and uh, I don't think you ever want to underestimate, uh, you know, the importance of that. Do you have a personal habit you feel has contributed to your professional success? Yeah, I've always uh, uh, focused on exercise, and I think. Uh, you know, I've been a fairly structured person, a fairly disciplined person, and uh, you know that 
uh, obviously has to flow through to to my day-to-day -day job. So I think uh, uh, you know those kind of go hand in hand uh, as far as uh, uh, you know somewhat of a routine, somewhat disciplined. Are you a runner? Uh, and now I bike. Um, I, I do a lot of uh, road biking. Um, so uh, that takes uh, a lot of my time, you know, 100 plus miles a week, and it's a. Uh, and I highly recommend it when I when I when I go by myself uh, and ride by myself. It's a uh, it's a great way, quite honestly, to think uh, through issues at work and business. And you know, a lot of times I'll uh, I'll uh, practice a presentation or or something that I need to accomplish or even create a presentation. And it's just a, it's a great stress reliever and it's uh, it's productive at the same time. So yeah, I love it. Good. Okay, we're up to our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? Uh, yeah, you know, in my current role now, you know, one of the big priorities is that we're going, you know, through some transition within our business model. And, uh, you know, we're uh, effectively a 100% software company, but it doesn't necessarily, it's not intuitively obvious uh, from an investor perspective just the level of software content uh, and the true value uh, of what we're what we're producing here uh, at Nutanix, and, and so the, a big priority over the next 12 months is is, is uh, having investors uh, appreciate uh, uh, the company in, in in a light that's more uh, software focused. And and uh, you know today we. Uh, uh, we've got some work to do there, but uh, the good news is is that uh, it's all there, and so we'll be, you know, transforming some things uh, business model-wise, and and uh, and I think uh, you know some pretty interesting things from an investor perspective that uh, will really ultimately uh, show the true value of the company. So we're excited about that. Obviously, a lot of that falls on me, and uh, so that's. Uh, that's a huge effort. It comes back, obviously, to, to investors and, and communication and how you communicate and what you communicate. And so that's going to be a, uh, a big focus here as, as we uh, uh, have just started our FY18. Uh, throughout our FY18, that will be a, a massive focus for us. Dustin Williams, thank you for joining us on CFO Fault Leader. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at CFOFaultLeader.com.